begin today's episode on the opioid epidemic with a detailed look at a brilliant expose of this crisis published by The New Yorker in October 2017 by Patrick Radden Keefe. The report, titled The Family That Built an Empire of Pain, details how the Sackler family's ruthless marketing of painkillers generated billions of dollars and millions of American addicts. I will include a link to this article in the description of this episode because I feel this is as good a place as any to begin understanding the origins of the OxyContin prescription opioid crisis that has now transformed into a heroin and fentanyl epidemic. The story begins with patriarch Arthur Sackler, who was a trained doctor, very involved in research and development of new drugs, but most notably an ad man, a remarkable genius at marketing. Keith writes that in 1997, Arthur Sackler was posthumously inducted into the Medical Advertising Hall of Fame for his achievement in, quote, bringing the full power of advertising and promotion to pharmaceutical marketing, end quote. Notorious for blatantly deceptive advertising gimmicks, Arthur Sackler also rallied editors of various medical journals to write positive and favorable reviews for the drugs that he was selling. During the 1960s, he hit it big with a blockbuster drug, Valium. Arthur's two younger brothers, Raymond and Mortimer, also followed in his footsteps, and together the three bought a small pharmaceutical company in Connecticut called Purdue Pharma. During the 1980s, Purdue Pharma had great success with a painkiller called MS Contin, a morphine pill with a patented control release formula. So this means that the drug dissolves gradually into the bloodstream over a number of hours. Contin here is short for continuous release. By the late 80s, MS Contin's patent was about to expire, and so the Sackler brothers started to look for a replacement. Keith writes in the New Yorker article, that in the summer of 1990, a Purdue Pharma scientist sent a memo to Raymond Sackler, Richard Sackler's son, who was also an executive at the company, and the memo described ongoing efforts to create a product containing oxycodone, which is an opioid that had been developed by German scientists in 1916. Oxycodone was inexpensive to make, and it was already being used in combination with other drugs, so Percodan is one example in which oxycodone was blended with aspirin. Another example is Percocet, where oxycodone was blended with Tylenol. But Purdue Pharma decided to develop a new drug of pure oxycodone with a controlled time-release formula similar to that of their successful precursor drug, MS Contin. The company decided to produce doses as low as 10 milligrams, but they also said that they would make jumbo pills, 80 milligrams and 160 milligrams. Another really important book in understanding the origins and development of the opioid epidemic 
was written by journalist Barry Meyer in 2003, and it's called Painkiller. In that book, Meyer describes these jumbo pills, these 80 and 160 milligram oxycodone pills, as, quote, in terms of narcotic firepower, OxyContin was a nuclear weapon, end quote, with aggressive lobbying to secure FDA approval and wide-scale deceptive campaigns to change the way that U.S. doctors treat pain. Purdue Pharma unleashed this nuclear weapon on the American people. The term opiates refers to alkaloids derived from the opium poppy plant, for example, morphine, heroin, and codeine. Opioids, on the other hand, refer to substances that act on the opiate receptors in our brain, so they mimic the action of opiates. Examples of opioids are oxycodone, hydrocodone, fentanyl, and carfentanyl. Because of the high addiction rates of opiates like morphine and opioids, American doctors prescribed it sparingly to diminish pain in short-term or acute conditions, for example, after surgery and for cancer pain. However, in the mid-1990s, when Purdue Pharma launched OxyContin, the company targeted this fear that doctors had regarding prescribing opioids. Marketing strategies claimed that doctors wrongly feared high addiction rates, and as a result, American patients had been unnecessarily enduring pain. They presented pain as the fifth vital sign. So in medicine, there are four vital signs or clinical measurements of a patient's essential body functions, pulse rate, temperature, respiration rate, and blood pressure. Purdue Pharma presented the experience of pain as a fifth vital sign. Now we all know that pain is highly subjective and unlike the other vital signs, it cannot be accurately measured and compared across patients. The idea was that doctors should believe that a patient is suffering if he or she says and be open to prescribing opioids to treat their pain. Purdue Pharma secured FDA approval to prescribe OxyContin not just for short-term acute conditions like post-operative pain, but especially for long-term chronic pain. I would like to emphasize here that there is no scientific evidence that supports the efficacy of opioids in treating long-term chronic persistent pain. Moreover, chronic opioid use leads to addiction, physical dependency, and ironically, an increased sensitivity to pain. Some folks, especially on the right, believe that Big Pharma is often turned into a scapegoat. But in this case, Purdue Pharma is clearly a bad actor. Consider how Purdue Pharma sponsored special medical seminars in which their paid speakers deliberately touted OxyContin's low abuse liability and advised doctors to prescribe the drug for chronic and mild to moderate pain for everything from wisdom tooth removal to physical injuries. In reality, OxyContin's effects in the brain mimic that of heroin. 
It should surprise no one, then, that OxyContin became an instant blockbuster drug, bringing Purdue Pharma $1.6 billion in annual sales within five years of its launch. And yes, OxyContin single-handedly turned a generation of Americans into addicts. As you can tell, I feel very, very passionately about this issue, especially because doctors take the Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm is the first and foremost principle. And yet here, the medical profession was co-opted by a company that knew exactly what it was making and yet didn't care. There is plenty of blame to go around here. After Purdue Pharma, I blame the FDA because having the FDA approval allow doctors, especially primary care physicians who don't know much about specialized pain medicine, it really allowed these doctors to believe that what they're prescribing is fine or it must be fine because the FDA says that it's okay. But doctors deserve a good amount of blame as well, especially those that turn their clinics into pill mills writing scripts for oxycodone when they clearly knew that their patients had turned into addicts. We've all heard of stories where people go in to see their doctor because they had a fall or they're suffering from migraine or, or something for which a strong dose of ibuprofen would have been enough. Instead, they get a month's supply of oxycodone and the next thing you know, They've sold everything they own, often selling their own bodies, living on the streets, snorting OxyContin in some dark alley somewhere, and when that supply disappears, then turning to heroin. To explain the impact of OxyContin on the brain, I will quote from an account of Cold Country Appalachia written by Beth Macy in her book, Dopesick, which was published last year. Here Macy describes how a local doctor first encountered the magnitude of opioid addiction. Quote, Back in the early days of OxyContin, Dr. Art Van Zee was as puzzled as he was concerned. He had begun to notice a new condition among his older opioid addicts, skin abscesses caused by injecting the crushed up drug. He was beginning to think that OxyContin, especially in its 80 milligram form, was another animal entirely from the 10 milligram Percocet pills that some teenagers used recreationally on the weekends. Before OxyContin, Van Z treated only one to three narcotic dependent patients a year. But he was starting to get regular phone calls from worried parents about their young adult kids, jobs, Homes, spouses, and children were being lost to OxyContin addiction. A banker he knew had already spent $80,000 of his savings after his son used his credit cards to buy items he could trade for Oxys. Down the hall from his office, a physician colleague treated a 70-year-old farmer who had once owned land worth $500,000. Within six months, the farmer had sold everything he had to keep his addiction fed. It's over, he had told his doctor. The kids are gone, the wife is gone, the farm is gone, end quote. The doctors were noticing something brand new. They had known people who abused Percocets, 
which consists of 10 milligrams of oxycodone with Tylenol. And these people could take a pill every day and still function. They didn't need more. They didn't crave more. However, the difference with OxyContin was that it turned them into non-functioning people. As I explained earlier, oxycodone should be understood as a chemical cousin of heroin. Unlike any other addictive substance, heroin works very uniquely in that it breaks the brain. That's how I can understand it. Here is an excerpt from a National Geographic short film which explains how opioids hack and hijack the human brain. There are many different opioids, but they all share a chemical similarity to our own endorphins. This allows them to bind to the same opioid receptors and stop pain signals. But that's not all they do. Deep inside Susan's brain is a region called the ventral tegmental area, or VTA for short. The VTA is full of neurons that produce a chemical called dopamine. When something good happens, dopamine is released, giving Susan a feeling of pleasure. This helps teach her brain to keep seeking out. To keep dopamine neurons in check, inhibitory neurons keep the brakes on until something good comes along. Just like the pain neuron, these neurons are covered in opioid receptors. When Susan takes the painkiller prescribed by her doctor, the opioid receptors turn off the inhibitory neurons and release the brake on the dopamine neurons. The rush of dopamine temporarily eliminates Susan's depression and anxiety, and she feels relief, calmness, and euphoria. As Susan continues to take the painkillers, her brain responds by trying to regain its balance. Her inhibitory neurons work extra hard, even when the opioid receptors are activated and it becomes harder and harder for her dopamine neurons to release dopamine. Susan finds that she needs to increase her dose of painkillers in order to feel comfortable. This is called tolerance. Eventually, Susan's pills run out. Inhibitory neurons that have been working over time are let loose, clamping down on those dopamine neurons and shutting them off almost completely. Now, not only is Susan in pain, but the depression and anxiety come back. On top of that, Susan feels ravaged by an inescapable physical sickness far worse than any flu. Susan's body is going through withdrawal. Susan thinks the only way to feel normal is to find more opioids. And this is how the cycle of opioid addiction emerges. I get that Nat Geo wanted dynamic background sounds, but I wonder why they didn't notice how it overwhelms the narrator's voice at a number of moments. Nonetheless, I hope you found it useful. True North Reports is a Vermont news website. Here I am in a phone interview with reporter Michael Belosky discussing the opioid crisis in Vermont. Now you mentioned you, you just wrapped up a three-part series for your TV show. Right. Boston's 
drug dealers. Now, that, that, that gang is a street gang called the Latin Kings, and they are one of the most violent street gangs in the nation. And she got mixed up with them. And, uh, well, she says she, did, she didn't know, but then those firearms were implicated in out-of-state criminal activity. The U.S. Attorney for Vermont, Christina Nolan, says that this is actually quite common to have these kind of straw purchases. She was um, federally indicted with uh, three other Vermont Vermonters, as I said, and her time in prison, that's where she hit rock bottom, and she said, all right, I don't want to do this, and I, I want to you know, get sober. So right. that, that was our three-part series where we talked about it, and I think it really... It really hits home. Um, she has she has four children. She's lost custody of all of them. Her parents, uh, you know, were not in her life. You know, the 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 real life consequences of, of of this opioid epidemic, this crisis that we see around us. It's not just statistics. It's not just numbers. It's it's lives. Um, they say that addicts they they hurt five other people, at least five other people in their lives. So it's it's people who are addicted. It's their families, their friends, their social circle. I mean, this is ripping apart the social fabric of our nation. It's, it is a crisis of um, epic proportions, and, and I, really, I really hope that, that we can start turning a corner when it comes to this, this horrible epidemic. And that concludes today's episode. Write to me at megpodcast at gmail.com. You can listen to the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash writing VT. You can also reach me on my Facebook page, Dialogues with Meg Hansen. New podcast episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. I'm Meg Hansen, and you've been listening to Writing What's Left.